This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 26th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. And this week we're going to be looking at a few recent developments. We're going to start with the IRS ending the COVID-19 relief that was given for high deductible health plans that allowed them to pay for certain uh, screening and, uh, di- and basically treatment options for COVID-19 due to the COVID-19 public health emergency. That's going to be ending here for years that end after December 31st, 2024, at least plan years of that point. We're gonna talk about a case of a taxpayer who attempted to get the IRS to give them permission to make a late mark to market election. They're a day trader under 475F. And we'll talk about why the taxpayer was unsuccessful and more importantly, why your client's likely to be unsuccessful if they try this, even if their facts are somewhat different from this taxpayer. Uh, I'll be blunt, I have seen over the time I've been looking at this and I've been reading rulings every week for years. I've been reading the PLR every week for many, many years, going back at least a decade. Uh, And I think longer than that at this point. And I will tell you, I've seen exactly one case where the late election was allowed. So basically, yeah, you're really, really going against the grain and going against the going upstream against the current if you try to get relief for this election so we'll talk about what the election is why you probably would like to have it uh, you know if your client becomes like most people that try day trading and loses a ton of money and why it's likely your client won't make the election timely and the issues and the problems we'll run into we'll talk also about a taxpayer who filed their tax court petition 11 seconds too late because they decided it would be great to come online and try to file their petition late on the last day that was available for filing and try to make that work. And turns out that trying something you've never done before, beginning at 10 p.m. on the last day for getting it done, where it has to be in by midnight, is not a recipe for success. And this taxpayer will end up paying the price for that. And then finally, something I'm going to try new this week is I'm going to have a little discussion, what I'm going to call here Sherlock Holmes on tax research. I want to talk about some uh, issues we run into when we try to do tax research and want to talk about why that and why Sherlock Holmes is what I'm going to come to. I've actually run across this quote twice in the past two weeks. And it's like, well, I might might as well go over this. May I remember the quote? We're going to talk about the Sherlock Holmes quote and why it indicates a reason why a lot of people end up with bad results and why we see some of these bad results in the cases where people do tax research but they're doing it backwards and when you do it backwards you tend to get the wrong answer and we'll tell you about why that's true okay let's start out here and let's talk first about irs notice 2023-37 that came out on june the 23rd now this particular notice is going to deal with high deductible health plans If you remember, in order to be able to make a deductible HSA contribution or have your employer make one excludable from your income, you must only be covered by a high deductible health plan, right? That has to be the coverage you have. Uh, You can't have what's called disqualifying coverage, which is coverage that provides other benefits beyond those allowed under the law by a high deductible health plan. And generally, the concept of a high deductible health plan was that for most things, you don't get any benefits under the health insurance program until such time as you have met the annual deductible, which is considered, at least when they first started these, a high deductible, 
These days, they're actually pretty close to what's become the normal deductible, but at the time, high deductible. But it can provide no benefits other than that. The theory being, when HSAs were first proposed, it was the argument that the reason why medical costs have increased so much is because people have no incentive to bargain with their physician or other medical care provider. Since the insurance company just takes care and pays it, they have no idea what it costs, they don't worry about it, the theory being that you would now bargain with your medical care provider. Uh, unfortunately, I think we have to say in the real world, that's not been what's been happening in 99 out of 100 cases. Uh, we're not seeing that. Certainly, we haven't seen medical costs go down after this started, but theoretically, it was an interesting concept, and we understand why that belief is there. Um, and, you know, it probably does have an impact, but people just at this point are so ingrained not to question medical bills that, yeah, it would just never happen. In the event, though, we still have that rule. Now, in notice 2020-15, the IRS provided relief for what a high deductible health plan could pay for before the insured had met their deductible for the year for certain things related to COVID-19, like testing to see if you had COVID-19, certain treatments, other things like that. It was a response to the health emergency. And in fact, many, in fact, we found that in many states, plans are required to pay for these things. The concept being that, you know, controlling at that point, the unknown and, you know, not sure what the issue was, not sure how bad it would get, COVID-19, that having that be put under control and having people getting the medical care was going to be a societal good. And so because of that, we we're going to basically say plans, you, you can go ahead and pay for this ahead of time. And there was, at least initially, even the insurance company may have liked the idea of being able to pay for it up front because the theory would be, well, if we wait, we're going to get a whole bunch of patients who have bad reactions to it, especially in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic before we had, you know, before we really understood the treatments, what should be done, all of those things, uh, and before people started catching it and, you know, building up resistance to it. Um, you know, we had that concern as well, that maybe, you know, getting these treatments and getting them tested early, getting treatments, et cetera, that that's going to be way cheaper than waiting till they're in the ICU and being intubated, you know, and then having to pay for all that work. So again, that was the idea back then when the public health emergency was declared. Now, obviously, the public health emergency, you may remember, was declared actually, it was kind of backdated to, early, to late January of 2020 and you know, got really started in March of 20 and had continued up until recently that we still had the COVID-19 public health emergency. Now, on April 10th of 2023, the public health emergency was ended when the president signed House Joint Resolution 7. That ended the public health emergency. So now the emergency is gone. The IRS had announced that they were going to, that you could continue and the plans continue to offer this benefit until such time as additional guidance came out. This now that we got in this time late June is the additional guidance. So it took a couple of months to get this guidance together, but we now have the additional guidance. They made certain decisions. They noted that because high double health plans can still pay for certain preventive medicine. So the question, which I think was the thing initially discussed was, given that COVID didn't exist before two years ago, is anything related to COVID going to be considered general preventive medicine that we, we should offer up? You know, what things could meet that requirement? 
and what things can't meet that requirement. And what happened was that, you know, they have had come in and said screenings for certain diseases have been listed as qualifying as preventive care. But the IRS noted that, you know, under those rules and under what was developed and what's come out of the medical profession, that generally uh, seasonal, let's say, common and episodic illnesses have not, screenings for those have not generally been covered. Uh, things like uh, hepatitis and things like that were covered because, again, they're not really ones that everybody has or we're going to get, but if we think it might be there, we'd like to get it tested. Uh, those are covered, but they said generally preventive care, you know, getting tested for COVID-19 is no longer going to be considered preventive care. That that's going to be considered just standard medical, like getting tested to see if you have the flu, you know, getting tested for any other sort of, you know, run-of-the-mill standard disease. That, yes, it's probably still useful to get tested if you have the flu, you know, to figure out what you've got to eliminate having other things that you might, you know, that maybe we're going to have to follow up because it's a little different and get our treatments together. But it's not considered something that's so unique and so special that we need to allow the high deductible health plans to cover it before the deductibles are met. Now, they do tell us, because it said there is a list maintained by the USBSDF. Can't remember what all those letters stand for. But they have a list of various items, and if the screenings or treatments move to what's called the A or B rating categories, which are seriousness levels, then they said from that point forward they'd be covered because those categories are covered. That's in the rules. As of right now, nothing COVID-related is in those categories. They could be moved if, you know, if situations change, but it's unlikely they will be. But they point out that, yes, if they got moved there, then they would be covered. So they're saying this ruling does not say never, ever, ever could a COVID thing be covered, even if it would otherwise have come under the law, but it's going to have to go through the standard routine we previously had in the law for it to be in play. Now, the, these rules apply for years ending after should be December 31st, 2024. If you're watching the video version of this, the slide says incorrectly December 15th, but December 31st of 24. That pretty much was done, I think, for simplicity. Um, and to explain why, you know, you might add them through November. It's like they just try to figure out a cutoff date. So they are going to allow plans and sometimes plans get set up well ahead of time. So they're going to say, OK, we're going to give everybody lots of time to get the plan changed. But, you know, but it needs to be changed if it's going to provide coverage effectively past December 31st of 24. You got to change the plan. But if you just adopted a plan here, so like, for instance, let's say that your plan year was the end of May. So you just renewed that June 1st. Well, that, that means that, you know, May of 2024 will be May 31st, 2024, will be the last date you, you could provide such coverage because the next plan year beginning on June 1st would end after December 31st, 24. Uh, obviously, the latest ones will be calendar year plans because they could start January 1st of 24 and they would end December 31st of 24. So again, that's something my suspicion is that every insurer is obviously going to be aware of this and will simply change the rulings there. We'll no longer provide that coverage um, or at least in states that may still require it. They'll basically have the next few months to uh, change their laws or another session to change the laws. And I expect that may also be part of it 
to remove the requirement for the insurance companies to provide such coverage, which will again open up HSAs to their uh, citizens of their state. Next up, we have Private Letter Ruling 2023-25003 that came out on June the 23rd. Now this deals with a day trader and the mark-to-market election under 475F1. Now, in my experience, day traders fall into one of two categories. And your day trader clients either make lots of money and are wildly successful, or far more likely, they lose pretty much everything over a year or two, you know, it's one of those lines, how do you get a, how do you make a small fortune? You start with a large fortune and you go into day trading. And we've seen, I've seen that multiple times where they go in and it's amazing how fast you can burn your wealth uh, if, you're, if you're doing day trading and you really aren't hitting the things you need to hit. So bottom line, you could create multiple six-figure losses. It happens regularly with people who try to go into day trading because you know they sold their business, they're bored now, they figure they heard all about this passive income and doing things without having to really do much work and it sounds simple, I just sit there and turn buy, 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 sell, 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 sell. It's like this should be dirt simple, hint, it's not. Secondly, it's not really very passive. Uh, you know, it's, it's a problem, but it's definitely tempting to people, especially those who maybe have an inflated view, which many of us do, if you've been successful especially, have an inflated view of you know your intelligence and your skill set and don't realize that merely because you might be good in fill in A, what is blank A, that doesn't mean that you're going to immediately grasp all these other areas like day trading. Now the real problem for a day trader is that the capital loss rules come into play without this election. Uh, the purchase and sale of these securities is still considered to be a purchase and sale of securities, those considered capital assets. And that means even though a true day trader will always be in full cash position at the end of every day, that's, that's the basic way because you don't want to take risks when the markets are closed or when you haven't helped you decide to sleep. You know, there, in essence, the markets could be moving like mad during that period that you're not aware or you can't make trades or whatever might be going on. So, you know, you, you pretty much get to cash, hold cash at the end of the day, and then immediately get into positions to start the day the next day and start playing on those very quick trades or the very quick movements that you've done with your research, your work, etc. see coming in that area. Okay, that, that's your background. Well, obviously, you're going to have capital losses. There'll be short-term capital losses. So gains aren't going to be long-term capital gains. The only good thing about a capital gain is that if you have a really large capital loss from elsewhere, you obviously can use it against the capital gain. So, hey, but that's about your only good news. And the odds are, hopefully, you don't have another big capital loss from other things. It's possible, but hopefully that's not your problem. And secondly, yeah. Other, you know, you're probably going to end up with the problem there as these people do. They join what I call the $3,000 a year club where their tax returns are very simple uh, to review the capital gain or loss section of the return every year because it really doesn't matter. As long as it shows minus 3000 it doesn't matter what else is on there, right? Because you're going to always lose 3000 a year. Now, under 475F, you can elect to 
mark open positions held at the end of the year to market if you qualify as a trader. Now a trader is somebody, and that's not covered in this thing. We're just gonna accept this person as a trader. If you actually have this situation arise, you do have to establish that this person is truly a day trader and not an investor. Uh, and traders have huge numbers of transactions. As I say, they tend to end the day in cash, right? And so that's different than somebody who just maybe makes, you know, 60 trades in a year. You may consider that a lot of trades depending upon what type of portfolio they have, and maybe it is, you know, that they made 60 or 300 or 500 trades during the year, but that's not gonna make them into a day trader. That's gonna be a little different. If you make this election, you will mark to market at the end of the year whatever you held that's open at the year. Probably nothing, right? Because you're probably going to cash, especially since the you know first of January is a holiday. You're not going to really want to take risks that things happen during that period that you can't react to easily, you know, and get into the market, out of the market, whatever you're doing. You know, you're you're not going to want to you know be stuck with something you don't want to hold during that position. And once you make this election. You then will treat all of your gains and losses as ordinary. So it'll be ordinary gains or losses. That helps us avoid the $3,000 limitation on net losses claimed each year. So when we have a bad year, which as I say for a lot of these people is every year they do it is a bad year, uh, you'll, you'll still be able to claim the full loss in that case. That will also allow you to create net operating losses. Now today that's not as big an advantage as it was a couple of years ago, and we'll talk about that. But generally, you could get a capital loss and then use that against other income, right? That would be there. Uh, the year in questions were years where the CARES Act applied, and that's important to understand this because since the CARES Act was in place, we could carry back a net operating loss for five years, and there was no 80% in interest, and there was no business loss limitation either for individuals both of which you know, make this election a little bit less useful than it used to be, since obviously NOLs have to go forward. They can only offset 80% of income. And we have the overall net business loss that limits how much loss we could claim in any particular year anyway. But none of that applied, so this person became aware of that after the fact, and they were a trader. Now, the key problem for the taxpayer is what the law says about the election. And this is found in Revenue Procedure 9917 because 475 uh, just basically says, IRS, you figure out what this limitation should be. So you, you figure out how this election has to be made. In Revenue Procedure 9917, the IRS ruled that you had to make an election to use mark to market by the due date without extensions of the tax return for the year before the year you want the election to apply. Now let's walk through what that means very quickly. So I have to file for 2023. I have to file my election for 23 by the due date without extensions of the year before 2022. That date is calendar individual April 15th of 23. So I have to make this election very, very early in the year. The reason for that is the IRS does not want people to, you know, you, they want you to make selection that is permanent and they don't want people to be able to wait to find the perfect year to make the election 
oh, I'm not going to worry about this or do anything because maybe I, there's a risk I could have some capital losses uh, that aren't going to be from day trading. I don't want them to sit there and hold this for years and then finally, oh, in December, oh, yeah, this year our losses are going to be well in excess of three grand. So at that point, I make the election. That's not what they want. So the election is super early. This is a very, very early required election. Also, because of that, the IRS notes it is highly unlikely that they are ever going to approve a late election. As I noted when I started today, um, I have only remember reading one case where a taxpayer was able to get a late election to go through, and that was because they had a change in entity type. They, I believe, went to a partnership. It might have been an S-corporation. They had previously made the elections individual and they had been on mark to market and now they wanted you know and they they thought that would carry over in a you know in an incorporation under 351 that would carry over to the new corporation uh it doesn't so they they sought to make the election just to recognize what they'd already been doing and the iris approved that one this is not that case and i think this is more traditional now, because the date, though, is set by regulation, the IRS under regulation 301-900-1 and 301-9100-2 will, will state the agency has the right to waive and allow any late regulatory election. Their position is if the date is set by Congress, they can't do that unless Congress specifically gives them permission. But if the IRS sets the date, Congress says the IRS can set a date, then they say, well, because that's under our discretion, we then also have the discretion to allow for a late election. So we're going to let you ask for it. Now, there are a few elections that are automatically granted, uh, and you'll find those in the regs. And then there are others where you have to uh, get permission. That, that you know, It's going to be an ask and see if you'll get it. This would be one of those. When it's not automatically granted, it doesn't meet the six-month or 12-month rule, and you can figure out that. We can go, you go back and read that. It's not really relevant for today's session, but you can just take a look at those rules and find out. When you don't meet those rules, to get relief, you must file for a private letter ruling, which means paying for it. It's like first step one, you need permission, and that's how you get permission. And you must show that you acted, the taxpayer acted reasonably and in good faith. And secondly that granting relief would not prejudice the interest of the government. Only if the IRS concludes that both of those are true, you acted reasonably and in good faith, and you basically, you know, you're not prejudicing the interest of the government by allowing a late election, then they will consider granting the relief, right? Now, in this case, the IRS found the taxpayer could show neither. What was the problem? Well, here's the problem. Because they're going for an, a very late election, as I could tell by apparently this, this letter when it came through, they knew about the results of their trade they had made in that year after April the 15th. That's something that could not be known by anybody who made a timely election. So they gained an advantage by being able to wait to make the election if the IRS grants this relief, we're going to grant them an unfair advantage over those taxpayers who 
basically played by the rules. And the taxpayer tried to get around this by saying, well, yeah, yeah, but, but, but you know, but the results of my trade after April 15th really weren't that different than the ones before. So because of that, you know, it didn't really make any difference. I would have made the election, you know, had I made it in April, I would have made the election. Uh, and, you know, so basically, since I'd have made that election in April, had I made it at that point, I would have done it. Then we, we can just ignore the results afterwards. And the IRS didn't really buy that. And I understand why, because even if you say now with what actually happened, I'm going to do the same thing I would have done had I had to elect back in April. The reality was you did know what happened. And had results been very, very different, let's say you had large gains and this would not have been advantageous, there it's highly likely that you simply wouldn't have asked for relief. So the fact that the actual results you got today maybe doesn't change what you would have done in April because you were losing then, you're losing now. The fact is, the mere possibility that had those results been different, you would have changed your answer, and rationally you should have. You wouldn't have paid for private letter ruling if there's no advantage to getting it. You'd have just waited and made the election in a later year. Then, yeah, it, it's basically you're not considered to being acting reasonably and in good faith, and this is really more looking at the good faith side of it, right? You know, you really can't be, you know, I'm sorry, but we just can't believe your statement that you would have made the election anyway. Um, and also, the regulations state that if a change, if the what you're requesting, your election that you're requesting, requires a change in accounting method, which requires a 41A adjustment, that presumptively prejudices the interest of the government. Now, this 41A adjustment is the old kind of the equivalent of, remember the old accounting 101, cumulative effect of a change of accounting method. Uh, it's basically the, the, the same issue, right? We're going to go back and look at how much additional taxable income or how much less taxable income would we have had had we always done things the way we're now going to do it. And at that point, you take that adjustment into account. If it's negative, you take it into account immediately in the year you change your method. If it's a positive adjustment, you take it into account one quarter in the year you change your method and then one quarter in each of the following three years. This adjustment is there by definition because you're required to follow Form 3115 and change your method for accounting for this stuff. That's argued to negatively impact the government. Now, if you really are at zero every night and you somehow can get by the first problem, which is not clear how you're going to do that. But if you can somehow get by the first problem, I would think you could argue, well, there is, you know, the 41A adjustment is zero. So really, it's not prejudicing interest of the government by moving income or deduction into the wrong year by allowing you to do this and manipulate that. So we don't think it's that bad. Okay, finally, in terms of cases this week, we're going to talk about the case of Sanders v. Commissioner. And this is related to a case we talked about earlier. In fact, they'll mention that case in here. But we had talked about a case earlier where somebody in Alabama on the central time zone was trying to file a tax court petition and didn't realize they needed to have it in electronically by midnight on the last day for filing. You may remember that case from a couple of weeks ago. I believe it was a nut case. Um, you know, so fine. 
Well, this is also going to relate to that whole bit about using the electronic filing system to file a tax court petition. Now, these cases are coming out now because the systems were put in back in 2020 uh, during the whole COVID pandemic routine. And I think the catch is just now we're starting to actually get these cases to come through the system and people are starting to, you know, use this a little differently. I think during the pandemic, probably people had more time to do these cases. And so they probably filed earlier. I think there's a reason why we're starting to see them now. Now, the problem we have, and this is going to be a real problem for Mr. Sanders, and it could be a problem for you and your tax practice. We'll talk about this here in a second. Different issue. Even if you don't file tax court petitions, I think there is something to learn here because you're seeing how the court's going to interpret a defense that you might be considering potentially having to use if things go wrong in your practice on the last day for filing returns or filing extensions. And in this case, when procrastination, when technology is involved, is tempting fate. And there's little question that Mr. Sanders did this here. Just before 10 p.m. on the last day to file his petition with the tax court to challenge what the IRS was trying to give him in taxes, he, he for the first time downloaded a PDF of his, you know, of the basically the basic outline petition to be filed. He downloaded that, and what's really interesting is he put it on his smartphone. Okay, so we're going to fill in this petition on our smartphone. And it's a PDF form. Now, there's a whole lot wrong with that. Not the least of which is, well, you know, I guess if you're young enough, you can, you know, may maybe actually can work with that size screen. I think a lot of us would have to blow things up and then have things going off the screen, etc., to be able to see it on our screen and work in landscape, which means we can't see many lines and do all those things. It would be much easier to fill this out on a regular computer. But for whatever reason, Mr. Sanders decided to spend what's going to turn out to be an hour and 44 minutes trying to get this all put together on his smartphone. Okay. So he did that. He downloaded it. Now, per the court, he said, you know, he, he was never able to really quite get this right. Uh, but around 11 p.m., he apparently had it in good enough shape to try to file a petition from the phone. Um, but for the next 44 minutes, he ran into problems that he never could get it to accept the petition. You know, he claimed it would, you know, the little button didn't allow him to upload. Other things went wrong. In any event, he kept doing this for 44 minutes. Now, the clock's running because this is the last day for filing his position. And remember, he didn't, try, he didn't actually try to start doing this until two hours before the absolute deadline. And clearly it appears that Mr. Sanders, we don't know this for sure, but it certainly appears that Mr. Sanders was doing it yourself, which again, is probably not a smart idea. In this case, we can talk about that later, but there's a lot of pro se taxpayers uh, in the tax court. So let's accept and they get petitions filed. So will accept, but probably doing something you've never done before is probably best not to wait till the last two hours to do it to get make your first attempt at even figuring out for sure what you need to do, which is what he was doing. So anyway, at 11.44, he finally gives up on trying to file this via the phone. And he transferred things. He decides he's going to use his Windows computer. Now, as we often do, Phones are kind of interesting this way. Getting files off of your smartphone and onto your computer 
can be challenging. Um, and in fact, the only way he could figure out to do it, which may not be right, but it's the way he figured it out, was to go ahead and email all of those documents that he had on the phone, email them back over to his other computer, to, to his mail account, so the Windows computer could grab them and then he could download the PDFs and work with them. In any event, you know, he's finally able, just before, I mean just before midnight, he's finally able to get the files onto his Windows computer and so now he's going to try to log into the site and try to file the forms. And by the time frame we know, the timestamps, at 11.56, he tried and failed to log into the site. Now, we should note at this time that immediately after he failed, other people succeeded. So, you know, it was basically most likely he got his password wrong. Right, he typed it wrong, did whatever, the clock's running. But at 11.57, he did manage to get in. But then he was slowed down by a couple of things. First thing is, uh, there were other steps online. It wasn't just simply log in and then, hey, click box here, you'll file. Right, there were other steps he had to take to set up his filing online. So that consumed some time. He also lost some time because he had to go back to the instructions and keep referring to what he had to do multiple times. So in any event, clock's running. Clock's running rapidly because we're, you know, we're now, when he finally gets in, there's less than three minutes left to file the return. So he needs to get it in and he's having to go through these steps online. He's having to read the instructions. Clock's running. In any event, he did finally get through and he was ready and began transmitting at nine seconds after midnight. And the upload concluded at 11 seconds after midnight. In fact, it was a little bit less than that. It was nine and a half seconds after midnight and right at about 11, so a second and a half for the upload, it was in. Now, the big problem is both of these are after midnight, right? So the system stamped the date time filed as December 13th, 2022, 12 a.m. And his last day to file a petition was 12 was December 12th, not December 13th of 2022. So he was 11 seconds past the last second to file his return timely. IRS, not surprisingly, moved to dismiss the petition, said tax court, you have no jurisdiction, you can't take on this. So, you know, he, he's lost his right to file in tax court. He now has to essentially pay the tax and then if he wants file a you know claim for refund and end up going through the district court routine if there's something wrong here but he no longer now has the right to go to the US tax court because he blew it because he didn't file his petition on time now the taxpayer said clearly there were problems with the system that night and because of that I was prevented from filing timely and so therefore I shouldn't have to be held accountable for the fact that I finally got through barely late, that, that in essence that I, my petition should still be accepted because IRS or tax court or whoever, this was clearly your fault, not mine. Okay, now the court then goes over some stuff. General rule, as we've already had, and that this was brought up in the nutcase talked about earlier, uh, petition is considered filed when it's received by the court. 
We put forward this proposition for electronic filing in the Nutt case, which was that taxpayer in Alabama who didn't understand that midnight was midnight Eastern time, not midnight their time. Even though they were in Alabama, it had to be by midnight Eastern. That was a problem. But they did say, you know, basically it's when they received it. And that, that was the idea there, that it was when received by the court, not when filed by the taxpayer. And that means since received by the court in the nut case, it meant that the court's time zone is what mattered, not the taxpayer's time zone. And also they said the actual uploading, the process of filing only takes place when the process is complete. You don't, you don't say that you timely filed when you start trying to do it or like log in the site that would let you upload. We don't count that as the time you filed. You file the petition when the actual petition document makes it to the United States Tax Court in DC. That's gonna be your time of filing by default, okay? Now, first they, tried, they looked at and they had an amicus brief that came in from a, you know, basically a center associated with Harvard University that was arguing, well, you know, you really, 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 really th th this should be treated like the timely mailing is timely filing concept, which isn't really what the section says, but we'll ignore that. People go by that under 7502. The one, you know, where if, as long as I mail something in using the postal service, and it's postmarked before the due date, before midnight on the date it has to be sent out. So it's postmarked on that day and is actually received by the IRS, uh, you know, sometime after that date, that the postmark date becomes the date of filing. Secondly, if I do that and use certified or registered mail, then that also provides prima facie proof of delivery. But that's not really an issue here because the tax court isn't arguing they didn't get it. They obviously got it, saying they got it 11 seconds too late. That's the argument. Well, here's the catch. I said, while under Congress Center State 502, the IRS was allowed to write rules for timely filing electronically, and it would appear even for tax court petitions, the only rules we have are relate to filing tax returns. And those electronic filing for tax returns refer to the postmark, e-postmark date created when the electronic return transmitter receives the tax return from the, you know, the ERO. That date is the date in question. Now they said the real problem is there is no authorized electronic return transmitters involved in the filings with the tax court. So you can't use that method, that reg is only there. So even if you want to say, well, you know, they wrote a reg, it even only says income taxes, it would work for tax court. Well, no, it won't because you can't possibly comply with it. So that's, that's not going to work. And they also pointed out that in this particular case, even if those rules applied, your e-postmark date would have been probably the 11 seconds when the time when the, e, when the return transmitter actually got the copy of the return. So that would have been your time date, your e-postmark date, not the date when the, the item was, uh, you know, basically when you just started to, hey, you know, Thomson Reuters, you know, CCH, uh, Intuit, I'm thinking of sending some up today. That, that's not quite good enough. You know, that, that, that's not going to work, depending upon how your system works. That, that's not going to work for this purpose. 
Now, I did say if you don't file returns, this is still useful. I, I think this is useful here to remind you that when you file returns, those times matter. And the other big thing is, please note how strict the court is on these dates and times. And if you get anywhere outside of the 7502 rules, like, you know, this taxpayer could have filed a petition using registered mail, mailed it that day, and there'd have been no problem here. We could have gotten everything done. He chose to electronically, which is great, but he also waited way too long to get in there. That was going to be his problem. Now, he did say, because this is another exception, that originally was a tax court ruling and then became statutory when the Congress put it in the law, that you know the place to file was inaccessible at the time the filing was due. And if that's true, then in many cases, you'll get a 14-day extension to file the document. Well, he said, you know, true. And the court admits that, yes, you know, if it had been inaccessible, he would have had time to file. But what does it mean to be inaccessible? And they looked at like a bankruptcy court case because other federal courts have similar rules. And they said the catch there is, was the problem created by the taxpayer system, their systems, their ISP, their you know computer, whatever, their operating system, was it problems on their end, their inability to understand how to you know log in the system? Or was there really a systematic problem that even if everything was perfect on your end and you knew exactly what to do to get the things in the system, that nobody could have completed. They said, that's not really here. They went back and they looked at the records of the Dawson system, which is what you filed through for a tax court petition. And it made it clear that others successfully completed the process at the same time he was trying. There was a whole bunch of other people who successfully got things filed. So it was not the case that the system was down. They checked the logs. They checked all that stuff. The system was not down at the time he was trying to do it. The court concluded that the problems were his systems and his a misunderstanding or inability to properly work with this. And so it was accessible. They compared it to the fact that, okay, let's say you're going to take your petition in to the tax court in D.C., but then, you know, you, you try to start going late and you leave, you know, not long before they're going to close the office there at the last time to receive it in D.C. that day. And turns out there's an accident on the route toward there that you're trying to drop it off at. So you're unable to get to the court, to that location, the clerk's office on time. They said that that, that, that doesn't solve the problem, right? That, that's not that the clerk's office was inaccessible. It was accessible. You just, you had other problems of your own that rendered it inaccessible largely because you waited too long to actually try to start going there. So kind of the same difference. If your computers die, if your ISP goes down, if your, you know, whoever goes down, your ERO goes down, um, that's also not an excuse. And by the way, it seems highly, highly likely the tax court would rule the same way here. You're, you know, the tax court is not likely to give leeway here, you know, saying, wait, you had all these ways to assure it and you only have a problem because you waited to the last second. Well, that's not really our issue. The court noted that Mr. Sanders has a lot of responsibility here because he decided to start this ridiculously late. 
You know, we started the process ridiculously late where everything just had to work. It's kind of like, as I've joked with people before about CPE courses online, you know, when you're taking an online CPE course, invariably I see this because even though I'm lecturing and I'm not the person handling tech support, I often see the questions and issues on tech support. And almost always, and I also hear from people later who've done the tech support, and invariably a huge number of people who waited until a minute before the course was going to start to sign in have problems. And then they're all upset because they might not get full credit because, you know, they're having trouble getting in. Uh, bottom line, when you're doing things like this, don't wait till the last second, right? Get in, do stuff. I also recommend that for people taking online CPE. Don't wait till the last second. It, it, it's like taking in-person CPE in town and realizing, well, you know, you know, last time I drove, let's say, the Arizona Society CPA's office, you know, well, it took me 11 minutes. So I'm taking course, let's say, today. I will leave exactly 11 minutes before the course starts. Well, that's great, except turns out my car doesn't start. Turns out I get a flat tire. Turns out all these things, well, yeah, they all can go wrong because I left no room for error. And that really was one of the big problems that Mr. Sanders had. He left no room for error. Now, finally, they tried to argue, but it's not fair, right? This is a problem. Congress does not allow the tax court to grant equitable relief on the filing date. The idea is the tax court can only hear cases that are properly filed before it, and Congress set the date and time for the filing and never granted the tax court the right to grant equitable relief if for whatever reason a taxpayer missed the date. So if you miss the date, the tax court doesn't have jurisdiction over you any longer. Rather, you'll have to, as I mentioned, pay the tax, you know, file for refund, get the refund turned down, then go to U.S. District Court and sue. You still have that option. Uh, you might not like it because you have to pay the tax up front, but you still have the option. So be aware of that. And they noted, you know, that, that relief now we have for assistance being inaccessible. You know, they, they note that Congress specifically, effectively, in explaining what they were doing and outlining what was going on, they made it pretty clear that, yeah, you know, if, if you missed that date, you were out of luck, and that's why we had to pass a special law to grant you additional time because the courts didn't have the authority to grant that time on their own. So that was considered to be one of the big issues. Now, as I said, if you're in tax practice and you don't follow the tax court, they're still relevant here because consider, the tax court will probably come to very, very similar conclusions if, let's say, instead of being this guy, you know, who's trying to file his petition at the last second, rather, we, we are a tax pro who, let's say, you know, waited till the last second on the final, on the due date, of April the 18th, or whatever it could be in the year in question, to file their extensions, right? And so there are those, and we all know those people, who are down at their office on, the, on April 18th, and they're down there well into the evening, still taking care of extensions, and you know, finally admitting that they won't get returns done by the 18th, or the 15th, or whatever the date is, and filing these late into the night. If you're doing that, then, if your system goes down, your computer goes down, 
and I've had computers die on me. I think most of us have. Your server could die, which would probably be disastrous. Your internet, your ISP could go down. And none of that is going to get you relief. I think you have to realize that, in fact, it's very likely that, you know, unless the IRS just decides to be nice to you, uh, you're probably going to have a major problem because I don't think you're going to win any of these court cases because the court doesn't seem to have a lot of sympathy for procrastinators in cases like this. And that's something to understand. Okay, let's go to the new thing I was talking about doing this week. Give you a little bit here. I'm going to talk about key tax research mistakes. And the one I want to talk about this year, because I've or this week, because I've heard this quote now twice in different contexts uh, this past week. And I thought, well, you know, it actually explains a big thing in tax. If you're a fan of the old Sherlock Holmes mysteries written by Arthur Conan Doyle, you may remember a line from A Scandal in Bohemia where Sherlock Holmes, who of course always is kicking out this wisdom to Dr. Watson, makes the statement that it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Because Watson, of course, is asking what does he think, you know, early on. And he says, insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. Conceptually, this is a problem that I see all the time when people are trying to perform tax research. They come up with their theory of the case. They come up with the answer, you know, what the result should be. And then they start going and looking at the actual code, regs, cases, etc. And they do, without question, as mentioned here, you'll start twisting the cases, twisting the law, twisting the regs, twisting everything to make that square peg fit in that round hole to make to get the answer or the theory you want to work. And that's the big problem here, right? Now, the one place I saw it, in addition to on Twitter in an unrelated conversation, was an article by attorney Philip Wolf that was in Tax Notes Today Federal on June the 16th that was literally titled, How to be sharp in tax, not a Texas sharpshooter. Now, he borrowed that second line from an old, from a Texas uh, judge's basically decision in the case where the attorney apparently came up with a really bad theory about why, you know, his client deserved relief or whatever and talked about the theory of a Texas sharpshooter, which is, you know, you, you just take your, you take, take your gun out, you go and, you know, just shoot at the side of a barn and wherever the most bullet holes are, you then go and you then draw the target there to show what a great shot you are. You know, the same concept here, you have now, you know, your, your preferred theory of the case is what is on that blank wall. And then you're going to try to yank the support and try to claim it all exists around that one place or that one theory, rather than trying to actually look at the target, figure out where the target is, and then trying to go through and figure out what's the best result I can get for my client with something that has a reasonable chance of going through. Different worry. And the problem is you will really twist facts and law. You'll really twist authorities when you have got the decision made ahead of time. Uh, you know, we, what we do is we research and the idea is starting with the answer and then trying to get back to the support is backwards reasoning, right? We're trying to reason backwards from a result we want 
to go find to go find the you know the underlying authorities that will get us to that result and that invariably causes us to do it wrong right or we may start out not necessarily doing something but we jump on an answer and the minute we do just as Holmes was saying you will then start twisting if you jump to your answer too quickly then your internal biases will start twisting things to work right we twist the information we find to fit whatever our current preferred answer is it might be the answer the client wants it might be the answer that you know when we first got in we you know we suddenly saw something we jumped to that answer and then we're just trying to find things to back that answer up uh, and that's a problem uh, this is very very closely related to the concept called confirmation bias right the idea being that we take a look at stuff and we tend to uh, be highly skeptical of any information or authorities we come across that go against our preferred theory right but we accept without any critical thought anything we come across that appears to back up the answer we like and the problem with that is we make some very very basic mistakes for instance let's talk about the second problem there you know accepting something without critically looking at it it's very easy you know you find a case it's right on point it's just what you want and like so you just stop there don't worry about it that can be insanely embarrassing if the IRS person you're talking to let's say you're trying to go to appeals you're even maybe even going to court we've seen this happen in court as well uh, with cases unfortunately from time to time it turns out this case you're relying upon was overturned on appeal in the circuit you're in so I'm in the Ninth Circuit. Turns out the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals specifically overturned that case or has ruled directly against that case. You know, if it didn't come to the Ninth Circuit, they've ruled against it. And in fact, maybe even the Supreme Court has now decided to split among the circuits and they agreed with the Ninth. Well, you miss that if, if you just find a case. You know, is the case valid? How have other you know how much has this case been cited in other cases and you know what are the what contrary cases might exist what other issues are there but you know we don't do that conversely we however will go like mad through the citator if somebody gives us a case that goes against our position and the problem is there that you know if we find even one other case let's say we're looking in this in the citator second from thompson reuters and we find uh let's say we have there a list of 30 cases that have this that have cited it most of which have it cited favorably but there's one case that you know questioned the logic questioned the reasoning and so we latch onto that and say see not all courts accept this so this case is garbage but the case we liked, we didn't even look at the citator. We haven't discovered the case was overturned. That's a key way of looking at confirmation bias. It's not just a problem on social media. It's, it's a natural way we like to think. You know, we, we, we latch into that because we, we like the shortcut. Okay. Uh, cases are especially susceptible to this issue. The question of distinguishing a case. Okay. 
We often ignore differences between the facts of cases we like and our client's actual situation. And there is no person that has exactly the same facts as any other person when we have a anything of any complication involving a tax issue. There are always distinguishing facts. And we need to be able to reasonably determine are those distinguishing facts important, crucial, you know, are they unimportant? And the problem is, again, we often, if, if something indicates a, you know, kind of an answer we like, we may in fact never actually read the case. We might just go by the summary inside of our tax reporting system. And by the way, if you do that, I'll be blunt. You, you are just as bad as those attorneys that got their case research from ChatGPT 3.5, which if you're not aware of it, it just invented cases. It's very good at that. I, I can get it to invent cases all day, right, if I want to. In fact, I use that in my ethics course. Uh, one of the things I showed was, you know, you know how, how that, you know, in terms of making sure you understand your tools. And clearly the attorneys in New York that got in that case didn't understand the tool. And so they misuse the tool. Well, the same thing here is if you're coming from the federal tax coordinator and you read this, you know, two sentence statement about the case that seems to support your client's position, you're not using the tool correctly unless you go get that case and read the case because those two sentences had to leave off a lot of things, right? You always, always, always read the cases you cite. Always, 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 no exception. Do not cite a case you did not read. Otherwise, you are likely to be very, very surprised. At least one third of the time when I go follow up a case that looked promising from a, let's say, a reference in something like a federal tax coordinator, a BNA portfolio, an article, whatever, I discover that, well, yeah, I see why the author wrote this up this way as to this result, but see, my client has this key difference and that's why it's not good for my client. And then also, we then find the most minor differences between the facts of a case we don't like and our client's situation, right? There's a double standard going on here. And being an advocate does not mean blindly, you know, just, you know, pushing something and just saying everything supports your position or you know, this all supports your position, anything contrary to it is wrong, it does require a realistic view and then that allows you understanding what's going on to present the strongest case in favor of your client's position. Whatever you want for the tax position, let's say, yes, you know, can we actually get the client's result? And if that is possible under the law, what's the strongest case we can make for it the only way to make a strong case is to understand where the weaknesses are, right? You know, you don't have a strong army, right? A strong defense if, if you just ignore the fact that, you know, you built the Maginot Line and forgot they could go around it. Famous historical problem. Same issue here. Too often we build tax Maginot Lines. And too often there are obvious ways to go around it that if the, you know, on the other side, the IRS knows what they're doing, they'll surface those problems. And yes, eventually you get somebody competent who surfaces the problem. And now you look like an idiot, 
There's no other way around it when that happens. Clients are best served when you reason forward, not backward. That is, don't make up your mind about the answer until you have done your first gathering of both the client's facts, what they are, in detail, ignoring whether that's good or bad for the result they want. Let's just take a look at that. Now, if you're in a position of doing planning and you're in a position where the facts could be changed, that's nice to know. It's also nice to know what, what facts aren't changeable. Because usually you have options even in planning. Certain facts aren't changeable. They've already occurred. They're already there. Other things we could make differences on in the future. So you want to understand those differences too. Right? Reason forward. Find those relevant authorities to address the question without coming to a conclusion about answers initially. Just gather your data. Gather your cases. Gather your information. And then once you do that, determine the answers or the outcomes that are supportable given what we have as authority. And with that, then figure out how likely positions would be to prevail. And then you can have a real talk with your client about, you know, what positions are they comfortable with doing? You know, how much risk are they willing to take? And you also are able to make the call as to whether you can sign a return with that position on it. When you try to research toward a specific answer, you are always, always, always going to be drawn into the confirmation bias problem. And you're always going to end up with bad research. I'll just phrase it that way. Okay, maybe not always, but I'm going to tell you, it's going to be very, very difficult not to be drawn into coming up with bad research with obvious blind spots. To anybody who's not sharing you know, your conviction, this is the answer. And I, I think that's crucial to understand that. You want to serve your clients? Make sure you do realistic work and then figure out how to advance a position and what positions can be advanced and be able to give the client a real world discussion of how likely it is for that position to be sustained if it's one you can sign off on. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of June the 26th, 2023. Current Federal Tax Developments, as always, is brought to you by Capital Financial Education and your state society. I'm Ed Zollers. My email address, edzollers at currentfortaxdevelopments.com, so you can catch me there. I'm also available online on the Connect sites for the Arizona Society, New Jersey Society, the Minnesota Society, uh, Illinois, Washington, and also check in the discussion area on the Idaho Society, so you can take a look there and post something there. Some of those are way more active than others. I think Arizona and California. Arizona, well, California's real active too. They got one separate issue. Um, but Arizona and New Jersey are probably the most active. Uh, Illinois is reasonably active. Uh, and some of the others are way less active. So we got that. It's just interesting how it works. And also the type of states, you know, why, why one state is and another isn't has never really been clear to me, but there obviously is a difference. So we have that. Uh, I'll be back next week, of course. We'll be looking at whatever comes up in the following week in the area of taxes. Uh, we'll see if anything happens. Congress is now back at the is back out and about in the country. So we're not going to have anything happen with those tax bills uh, that we had, which I really didn't expect would anyway uh, that quickly. So keep all that going. Uh, that's not going to be happening. We probably will still have you know court cases, IRS releases, that stuff. And we'll take a look at that talk about them next week on current federal tax developments.